Today's the third week of a sermon series that we've been uh, going through. Two weeks ago, we focused um, on the younger son in the parable of the two sons. Um, we, we focus on the younger son who sought happiness and fulfillment in a faraway country, away from the father. And then last week, we focused, we turned our gaze on the older son who actually didn't run away to a far off country, and yet emotionally, he did. So emotionally and relationally, he ran away from the father and he buried himself in his quote unquote good works where the more he did for the father, the more he felt the father owed him. So in both cases, there are ways of using the father to get what they want. In the first case, it was, I want money to spend on whatever I want. The second was just the same, except he didn't run far away. He was actually earning it by staying and by working. But they're both ways of using the father to get what you actually want. And then at the same time, we also talked about the way that the father responds to each. So to the younger, he gives four particular things. The first was he, he clothes him and he covers him in a robe and it symbolizes and it says, it communicates that he is forgiven. Whatever he has done, wherever he has been, however he has spent the money, from that point forward, he's forgiven and he's covered and he is even visually um, in full status back into the family. The second thing that he gave him was a ring, and it wasn't just an accessory ring. It wasn't uh, any promised ring or whatever. It was a family signet ring, and it says you are family. You're legitimately a son of the family, and you have the authority as such as well. The third thing he gave him was shoes. So many times in the old days, the, a sign of slavery of, or servitude was the fact that you were barefoot. It was very clear from even like far away, you could tell who was a slave by looking at their feet and you could tell, oh, they're not, uh, you know, a, a, a citizen with full rights. They are a slave or are, they are an indentured servant. And so putting shoes on the returning son's feet, it communicates to him he is free. Whatever it was from the past that held him down, that enslaved him, it now longer, no longer is the case. He is now free. And then finally, the father prepares a feast for him. If we remember in the first week that we talked about this, it wasn't particularly his conscience that brought him back to the father. It was hunger. It was his stomach that brought him back. And so he's still hungry. And the father doesn't overlook the fact that he's still hungry. And it prepares a lavish feast. And he celebrates him in this way. So this was the first week. In the same way, we saw the father reinstating dignity and worth in the returning younger son. We see him doing the same with the equally rebellious older son who refuses to go into the house to celebrate his brother's return. So to someone who is filled with anger, with resentment, with comparison, with entitlement, the father extends very gracious words as well. The first thing that he says is he calls him son. It's another way of saying, you are still my son. You're still family. No matter how much you're rebelling right now, no matter what you're saying, you're still family right now. No matter how much you're embarrassing me in front of the entire town, you're alone. You felt doing all the roles and all the jobs and all the things that perhaps you're picking up for your brother. You are not alone. I am still with you. I have never left your side. 
The third thing that he says to him is, all I have is yours. You are provided for. You don't have to fend off in your own. You don't have to try to make it out on your own. You have a father who provides for you. So you do the work out of joy, out of partnership, but you don't do it because you're fearful that you're not going to be provided for. You have a father. Then lastly, although he didn't outright say it, he implicitly said it. He was inviting him to the feast. And no matter how, you know, how rebellious he was, no matter what kind of tantrum he was kind of displaying, he still desired. He's still welcomed into the feast. So we see the father extending the same kind of grace that he extended to the younger son. He does the same for the older son as well. Sometimes in our minds, when we read this parable, we think, okay, it's very clear who's a good guy, who's a bad guy. You know, the good guy is probably, you know, the the older son who stayed there and, you know, maybe he had a right to be angry. The bad guy is the younger son who blew all the money and he came back and, you know, he just gets forgiven somehow. How's that fair? And that's how the initial way in which we read this parable But what Jesus is doing through this parable here is he is basically blowing up our understanding of what sinfulness means, what lostness means. It can look very religious and very moral and very upright. And yet it is the same kind of rebellion, the same kind of sin, the same kind of lostness that you can have, except you never leave the house. Does that make sense? So all of us, in some way or another, we have the younger son in us, a part in us that rebels, that, man, I just want to get mine and get out of here and live however I want. That same heart was in the older son as well, but he was going about it in different ways, through different means, and it was by working hard. That was his way of controlling the father. He's like, I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get mine, except instead of running away, what I'm doing is I'm going to work for it, and then I'm going to get what I actually want. And we see how both of them are basically one and the same. They're both forms of lostness. They're both forms of sinfulness. And Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, if you've never read it, I highly encourage you to read it. It's a super short book. Um, And this is how he says, uh, Tim Keller says, uh, this parable kind of explains the gospel. Jesus is not a Pharisee about Pharisees. He is not self-righteous about self-righteousness. He not only loves the wild, living, free-spirited people, but also hardened religious people. And so we see Jesus laying down an invitation before both the rebellious and the religious, the prostitutes and tax collectors and the Pharisees and the scribes. So we're talking about social outcasts and religious elite alike. He's laying before them an invitation and the invitation isn't to find some kind of magical, mystical middle ground, you know, between rebellion and religion where somewhere in the middle, as long as you're not too religious or you're too rebellious, somewhere in the middle, you hit this magical balance and that's kind of, you know, the, the golden ticket. That's not what it is. He's laying before us a very different kind of scheme. He's saying there's either rebellion and religion or there's the gospel. You can either live by and deserve what you yourself have earned through rebellion or religion, or you can receive what has been freely given to you through the gospel. So this, this invitation is to tap into something of a different order altogether. We're not talking about a spectrum here where, look, 
Just don't be too bad or don't be too good. Somewhere in the middle, hopefully we'll land in a good place. He's saying, no, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All need grace. And so he's saying you either can fall into a life that lives under slavery to rebellion or religion, or you can be freed and step into the truth of the gospel. So you no longer have to rely on your self-discovery or self-definition like the younger son did, nor your self-righteous works, but in what someone else has done for you altogether. Not what you're able to do on your own, but what someone else has done on your behalf. So that is what Jesus lays before us. And that is what we've been talking about the last two weeks. And so today we're going to be focusing on the last character, the last figure in this story. And that is the story of the father. I love this picture. Um, I actually don't. I was looking really hard to, to find the author of this. It's a painting. I actually don't know. I couldn't find. If anybody is, you know, a tech whiz and, and you know um, how to find that kind of information, please let me know. But it's a depiction of the father running out to meet the son. And I love kind of the urgency. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be funny. My bad. <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's like the urgency that you sense in his, in his face. Um, and we're going to focus on the father today. So we're going to read the same passage that we've read in the last few weeks. And this time we're going to do it slowly so we can kind of pick up the nuances. So this is the third time we're combing through this passage. And by now you should be able to pick out your own reflection in the younger son and also in the older son. So you should be able to pick out your reflection in both the tax collectors and sinners as well as the Pharisees and the scribes. So we start with Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. You can just follow along. It says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them, saying, then he goes into two parables. You guys remember we talked about this. The first one was of a shepherd who has lost a sheep. The second one is a woman who has lost a coin. And then this third final parable, a few verses later in verse 11, Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. So his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. So this is a passage that we've been revisiting over and over again the last two weeks. Hopefully we pick up a lot more of the, of the meaning and the understanding right behind it. So in his book, The Prodigal God, in the same book that I read from earlier today, Tim Keller, he makes a really interesting point. How many of us have heard of this parable as a parable of the prodigal son? Parable, right? For the longest time, that's what I knew it as well. So I always assume that prodigal meant like lost and returned or like repentant or like Man, he did things really wrong, but now he's trying to make things right. So I always thought that prodigal meant that. But prodigal actually means wastefully or recklessly extravagant. So when people call this parable the parable of the prodigal son, they're referring to the fact that he blew his inheritance, basically, in reckless living. In that way, he's wastefully or recklessly extravagant. But although the younger son was wasteful with his portion and his inheritance, Tim Keller makes this point. And he says, the truly wasteful person here, the truly extravagant person in the story is actually the father. And in our lives, the truly wasteful and extravagantly reckless person in our lives is God in the way that he chooses to treat us even though we're sinners. So if we go back to the first, uh, no, sorry, if we go back to the idea and the picture that we see Jesus painting of the Father, we see three different things that we're going to talk about today. The first thing is passionate pursuit. We see the Father passionately pursuing not just one son, but both. The second thing that we see him displaying is costly forgiveness not easy forgiveness but costly forgiveness and the last thing that we see him displaying is exuberant overflowing over the top bursting at the seams exuberant joy 
And so we're going to talk about these three different things. So if we go back to the first of the three parables in Luke 15, the first one talks about the shepherd. And it says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country? So, you know, almost recklessly, defenseless, almost recklessly, open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it. Wouldn't it make more mathematical sense to stay with what he has, right? And man, you got to just let that one go, you know? You're just going to move on with life. And yet this, this shepherd, he valued this one sheep so much that he left the 99 in order to go look after the one. The second parable that talks about the woman, so it says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. That's 10% only, right? She loses one, and yet does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. So it's not just like, oh, where is it? Oh, I guess I lost it. No, it's like you're moving furniture. Like you are unscrewing things from the wall. Like, like you are turning your house upside down in order to find this coin. And then the third one, the one that we're looking at right now, when we see the returning younger son when he was still a long way off, we see his father seeing him and being filled with compassion for him. And he runs out to his son. He throws his arms around him and he kisses him. So we see a picture, not of a particularly dignified God in a sense. It's not like he was like, I'm just going to wait here until my son gets here. And then we're going to have a talk. No, it's, it's a it's a father who saw him and it's almost like he lost it. He doesn't know what propriety is anymore. He just takes off running. His gown is flailing everywhere. Like you can imagine his eyes wild. Like, is that my son? And he just takes off. It's almost like he loses it. And that's the picture that we see Jesus painting of God the Father. It is highly, highly offensive to many religious leaders that are hearing this parable. And so this is the picture of the father and the God that we serve and we worship as well. Have you ever like taken a moment, just a moment to reflect on how God has extravagantly pursued you? Like what he did to get to you, how he pursued you through your spiritual dullness through your arrogance, through your pride, your slowness to believe, your self-serving agendas, your defense mechanisms, all the walls that you put up, how God has persevered through all those things in order to pursue you. Have you ever taken a moment just to think about the extent to which he went to run after you time and time again? It's not like God was like casually just waiting for you to be like, oh, that's the gospel. Oh, that's Jesus. Okay. No, it's God pursuing you extravagantly. This is how the gospel of John says it in John chapter one. It says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He came to that which was his own, but he did, uh, but his own did not receive him. That's us, by the way. We did not receive him. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. That is the extent to which he went in order to passionately pursue us. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, he, said his, he says it this way. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we see a picture of a God who did not spare his one and only son in order to bridge the gap between fallen mankind and a holy God. Someone who didn't just inconvenience himself. He didn't just go the extra mile, but it's a father who gave up what he treasured the most. And that was his one and only son. And then in turn, we see a son who literally laid down his life for the ransom of many. And I've said, said this before, but Christianity is the only religion that speaks this message. It's the only religion that says mankind is hopelessly lost. It's not like if you do enough works, think the right thoughts, pray the right prayers, you're going to make it to God one day. Christianity doesn't even entertain that thought. It says mankind is hopelessly lost without the intervention of a gracious God. And God is infinitely merciful in coming to us instead of just waiting for us to find him. And it is the only God who would die for the sins of his enemies. The only God who would die for the sins of his enemies. The book of Romans, it says that while we were still sinners, not once we had found out that we were sinners, not once we had repented, not once we had turned our lives around, it is while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so do you see how offensive the message of the gospel is? How unlike any other religion, it is brutally honest in its assessment of mankind's fallen state and yet offensively counterintuitive in saying that God still wants you and he still pursues you. That is the kind of God that we worship. That is the kind of father that we see running after both of his sons. And then on the flip side of that same coin of passionate pursuit is costly forgiveness. It's not cheap forgiveness. It's not like, no, we good. We good. We straight. That's, that's awesome. You're back. It's not a cheap kind of forgiveness. There is a price to be paid for sin because according to the Bible, the wages of sin is death and the payment and inevitable conclusion of our sin. It is death. But the Bible says that God bore upon himself that payment in the words of prophet Isaiah. He describes Jesus this way. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel. So I need to live with the understanding that nothing I could do or ever could have done could have earned me the full acceptance and the full embrace of the father. It was completely free for me. I didn't earn it in any way. And yet at the same time, I also need to live with the understanding that it came at a very high price. The life of God's very own son who chose to bow down low and take my place on that cross. So I need to understand as someone who believes in the gospel that it was 
my rebellion, it was my waywardness, my arrogance, my self-serving interests, my godlessness that put Jesus on that cross. And we need to camp out there at the foot of the cross. We need to take it in. We need to allow it to free us from guilt and shame, but also from self-serving, self-glorifying entitlement and pride. We need to understand that forgiveness I've received is free to me, but costly to God. This, this is one of my favorite quotes of all time. It is written by a German pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it's not just somebody who spoke words, you know, just theorized things. He actually lived it out. He was a German pastor in the middle of Nazi, the Nazi movement, and he was eventually killed. He talks about God's grace as costly as opposed to cheap, and this is what he says about it. He says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You are bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So forgiveness is always costly. Someone had to absorb the cost of the younger son's wastefulness. Someone had to die for there to be a feast, the fatted calf. Someone has to bear the reproach and the shame of the older son's rejection. That's the father. And in that same way, someone has to pay the price for my sin, my defiance, my self-righteousness, and someone has to pay the price for yours as well. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that we see. And thirdly, he's not just passionately pursuing us. He's not just forgiving us by paying the high cost. It's also a God who is exuberant with joy. Just like in the first parable where the shepherd, you know, he finds a sheep. When he finds a sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. And I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than, nine, than over 99 righteous, quote unquote, righteous persons who do not need to repent. The shepherd isn't there saying this little jerk of a sheep. Like, where were you? Don't you know how much trouble you put me through? He didn't do that. He just joyfully, thank you. He just joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And in the same way, in the same way, when God sees a repentant heart that turns to him, not because they figured it out, not because they found the magic formula to success and perfection, but in the midst of their brokenness and weakness, they simply cry out to him in faith and trust. He doesn't nag them. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't say, where have you been this entire time? What happened with inheritance? He puts you on his shoulders joyfully, and he takes you home. A few verses later in the second parable 
of the woman who lost the coin. It says when she finds a lost coin in the same way, friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. She not only celebrates on her own, but just like the first parable, she gathers people around her and calls them to rejoice. She commands them to rejoice. And lastly, in the third parable that we've been looking at the last few weeks, the father says it was right that we should make merry and be glad, that we should celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. By extension, if the older son were to have responded to that invitation to come back into the feast, there would have been that same kind of rejoicing and being glad. This is what the father invites us into. It's not a life of drudgery and misery and self-righteous piety. It's a life of joyful obedience. It's a life of joyful sacrifice. It's a life of joyful trust. It's not this ordinary run-of-the-mill, like, happy-go-lucky, like, everything's great and fine, and I just slap a smile on my face and tell people that I'm doing great. That's not what we're talking about here. It is tasting and seeing that God's goodness is true, It is true celebration in the deepest sense. It is even though you walk through the valley of shadow of death, even there, God's presence is there with you. His rod and his staff, they comfort you. It is the father setting up a table before you in the presence of your enemies and overflowing your cup, even when you are surrounded. This isn't merely like, let's think positive, guys, you know, or like denying that anything's wrong. It's not any of those things. It is a deep and profound joy that no man and no situation can take away from you. It's a freedom and a rest and a belonging that believers, no matter in what kind of situation they find themselves in, they have access into. It doesn't matter if you have a cushy life. It doesn't matter if you're a believer in a concentration camp. You still have access to that very same joy. It is a joy of the Lord that is our strength, even in the midst of of dire situations. And we need to understand that the Lord delights over us. Often we live, especially if you're a bit more like me, you live with kind of a lot of self-criticism, a lot of, man, I wish I did this better. Man, I feel like I could have done that differently. Man, did I do enough with a sense of like, I need to measure up. But the Bible says, God delights over me. I don't know why, but he does. He, he loves me with all my imperfections with all the times that I find myself to be weak and don't follow through and fall and say the wrong things and all of those things, it's not despite those things that he loves me. It's even with those things that he loves me and it delights over me. So this is the God that we see, one of passionate pursuit, one of costly forgiveness, and one of exuberant joy. He introduces both prostitutes and religious leaders to a God who's passionate in his pursuit of the lost, a God who takes on the cost of forgiveness upon himself. And he does it with exuberant joy. There isn't the sense in him like, man, they better pay me back or man, I better, I'm going to celebrate them, but I'm going to show my displeasure so that they know that I don't approve of their actions. He's not doing any of that. He is celebrating them as if nothing had happened. He's absorbed the full cost of that forgiveness. 
This is the portrait of the father, according to the parable spoken by Jesus in Luke 15. This would have dumbfounded both the tax collectors and sinners and also the religious leaders. Nobody has ever known this kind of God. There is no other God like him. And in the midst of all this, in the midst of Jesus showing us a father, pointing away to the father who is in passionate pursuit of us, who forgives us, although he has to bear the cost, and who is joyfully exuberant over us. In the midst of all this, there's this underlying idea that the father embodies, and this is the idea of a home. Jesus paints this picture of God the father as a home for us, as a dwelling place, as a resting place for us. There's this idea of arriving, of homecoming, of belonging. Now, even in this room here, we have, you know, a ton of expats and foreigners here, right? Usually, within the first three months, people, when they move to Korea, there's this excitement, novelty. There's like, oh, dude, there's like pedal everything. There's like, you know, the subway can take you everywhere and everything is so convenient. And man, there's so many things to see and so many things to try. That's usually for three months, anywhere three, three to six months. And then there's a point where you start getting homesick a little bit. And some of us experience it different times of the year. Usually this time of year for a lot of, especially for a lot of American people, is this time of the year you get a little bit homesick because this is like the time of the year where the family gathers. It's like right around Thanksgiving and Christmas. And, you know, you kind of just thinking about like the smell of, I don't know. I'm not American, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> like apple pie and, and the, you know, like, I don't know. Sorry, I'm... I'm j- stereotyping you guys but but that's what i imagine right imagine like like pumpkin pie and apple pie like no the smell wafting from the oven and then you know like i don't know turkey somewhere i don't know but there's a sense and it's not just like it's not the pie itself it's not the turkey itself it's like this understanding that this is my home i'm welcome here i'm embraced here so whatever Whatever it looks like for you, you have an idea in your mind of what a home looks like. It could be, I don't know. For me, I grew up in Chile, so that's kind of like more my home. It was like Christmas during summer. <laughs> like you're at the beach celebrating Christmas. Um, and some poor guy is like sweating under like, you know, a Santa costume because it's really hot. Um, it wasn't made for summer. Um, that's my idea of home or like your mom's cooking. Or like your, your, your bed at home, like you remember exactly what it feels like. Things like that, it's this idea of a home. And so we as expats and foreigners, mostly here, we have a, a bit, like we have a, a bit of understanding of what that looks like. It's like this aching, this longing. You know that there's somewhere out there where you belong, truly. Like somewhere out there. Whether it's true or not. Whether, you know, when you go back there, it's like, ah, the apple pie wasn't as good as I thought it was. Or like, you know, even though whether it's it's true or not, there's still this idea in our minds of what a home is. There's a kind of homesickness that you live with. And in the same way, we live with a kind of longing in this life. That So, for example, closer to home with every day. So there's many different ways to look at it, right? So, for example, in a spiritual sense, we journey home in search for freedom, for salvation, away from slavery and sin and death. So we are like aching and yearning for that 
sense of freedom of like my guilt is no more like that weight is off my shoulders the sense of this is not where i belong i want to walk towards that freedom that's in a spiritual sense now in a daily sense we're sojourners in this world we are in it but not of it right we're actually citizens of another kingdom so although we are here and we are called to do different things. We are called to be in different things and affect and, and, and influence and do different things in this world. This is not truly our home. As believers, we need to have this slight sense of, you know, it's like you're visiting someone else's house almost. Like it's not truly your home. Like you can't take off your socks and like, you know, throw them I don't know what you do at home. I don't know. You can't like walk into someone's refrigerator and just, you know, do whatever. It's not your home in the same sense. This world in its fallen state before the new heavens and the new earth, it shouldn't feel like home. So there should be an ache and a longing and a, and a yearning for something more. And God designed it that way. We're not supposed to be fully content in this life and in this world. Now, in a general sense, as mankind, ever since Genesis 3, ever since Genesis 3, mankind, we have been exiles and pilgrims ever since then. And entire history is a journey back from a far off country called sin, now back into the arms of a father. That is our journey as mankind, and that is where history is heading towards. In this life... If you think about, what, the 80 years maybe that you get in this life, when we think about this life, we are journeying from this limited and fleeting life that is nothing but a breath into the next life that is to come, that is eternal. This is not our home. This is not true, true life. There's a life that we're going to experience, life eternal, that we haven't even tasted of yet. And now in a more grand and cosmic and ultimate sense, we are sojourners and pilgrims from this fallen world into the new heavens and the new earth at the end of time. So when Jesus comes back to make all things new, that is going to be our home. That is going to be when we finally, finally arrive in the ultimate sense. This is not our home. We're supposed to live with this sense of something's missing until God once again dwells with man and he will be our God and we will be his people. There's a, there should be a sense of homesickness in us that drives us, that pushes us, that makes us gravitate towards this ultimate culmination of all history and of all time. We're supposed to live with a sense of until God dwells with man once again, until we walk together in the cool of the day, in the garden, once again, until then, we actually live in a broken communion and in a broken closeness. There needs to be this ache in our hearts for what should be, what should be and what will be one day. So I'm going to end with this. Uh, actually, before I um, started the sermon series, I had no idea, you know, where, what date we would land on. And so I just started preaching the sermon series. And I didn't realize someone alerted me about two days ago that actually tonight, sun is already set? Yes. So starting sunset today, it's actually the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles in the Jewish calendar. 
Now, for you guys are like, what the heck does that have to do with me, right? What's a tabernacle, right? So somebody pointed out to me, and I think it's a really interesting coincidence, and I feel like the spirit's behind it as well. It's a week-long celebration for Jewish people, and it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's actually, by, in some translations and by some people, they call it the feast. So, yeah, come to the feast. The fe- oh, okay, okay. <sighs> so what they're called to do, actually, is they, for one week, you know, they build these booths and these tabernacles, these, these kind of tents of, uh, like, it's like temporary housing, and some of them actually spend the entire week in these booths. It's a visual and experiential reminder that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he led them through the pilgrimage through a desert for 40 years, and the only permanent home they had was God's presence. So they are fully aware that they're exiles. They're refugees in search of a promised land. And God provided for them supernaturally for 40 years in this way. So they're reminded every year as they actually have homes, right? This is not their actual dwelling. This is not their, their house. So actually every year they leave their comfy homes. They leave their bed. They leave whatever comforts they have at home. They actually go outside their home. They build these things. So, and they stay outside in this temporary tent so that they are reminded that this body, this life, this world, it's only a temporary tent. It's only a temporary tabernacle. This is not their eternal promised land. And this isn't their final destination. They're still pilgrims and exiles waiting for the full consummation of history when God will dwell once again with man and we will be his people and he will be our God. And in one sense, we are all the younger son on our way back home. In another sense, we're all the older son waiting to be brought back into the banqueting hall, being extended an invitation by the father. And his call to both is to come to the feast. This is what it looked like in 1950. This is a picture from 1950. This is kind of what it looks like today. It's a bit more modern. But what they do is they actually build this. Some people actually spend the nights here for a whole week. And they gather people inside. And it's this idea of communing within this tabernacle, within this little booth and this little tent. And they're reminded of God's goodness, God's provision in the meantime. It's this forward-looking, I know this is not my permanent dwelling this is not my final destination and yet at the same time there's thanksgiving as you're traveling through this temporary dwelling god's invitation is to leave behind all that hinders all the sin that so easily entangles and to enter into the father's joy and this is our call as christians as well this is not just for jewish people this is for us to be reminded as well this life is not supposed to feel like our home We're never supposed to feel like we've arrived until we see God face to face. And that's the way God has designed it. That's the ache in our heart. That's the ache in God's heart as well. As much as we long for the sense of belonging, God longs to have us with him where he is. That was Jesus' final prayer before his crucifixion. 